week, actually. I didn't have any of my big jobs on, so I've just been doing, like, a lot of little jobs, which was nice. That um, good. Yeah, but I did... God, do you hug the right side when you're driving? Um, hmm. I think yes. Yes, I, I do. I hit curbs all the time, and hmm. I finally hit my last curb on my brand new... T- <laughs> I literally got these tires, like, a month ago. I hit this curb, and I was like surely I didn't because I've done this before split a tire by hitting a curb and then I hear the traditional so I pull over beautiful evening and I was you. like this is so embarrassing I have to like call my dad because I couldn't get the freaking lug nuts off because like I know generally the how process. to but mm-hmm. then also I was like if I don't get them back on tight enough I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your car's, your wheel's going to fall off. Yeah, for sure. But other than that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got the new tire on today. Everything was fine. But, but yeah, other than that, it's been a very nice calm week, which is like a nice change of pace. <laughs> well, that is perfect for the beginning of season <laughs> yes, eight. Yes, it is. Can you Welcome. believe it? Welcome. I cannot believe it. Season eight. We have some exciting things coming up. We have so many book interviews. Yes. We're having Dr. Jamie Goodall back on, whoop, our whoop. pirate specialist. We're having <sighs> Lessa Charlotte on. Yes. And her new like podcast, she contacted us, and then a, another professor, professor was it Stonis? I think so. Yeah, yeah. We, we have collabs out the Ugh, wazoo. It's unbelievable. So much fun about to happen. Twenty twenty one is going to be a big year for Herster on the Rocks. I'm feeling it. Right. But we're not here to talk about all of them. <laughs> no, we're here to talk about history. <laughs> on the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. And this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. Mm-hmm. But just so you know, we are drinking the entire time. <laughs> yeah. And we are not technical historians, nah. although I think we have honorary degrees at this point, at I least in women's hope history. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we might mess up because we're drinking and mm-hmm. you know, you say dumb things when you're drinking, oh gosh, mess up dates, stumble does. through names, but we're trying to give you the basic info about some amazing women. Yep, absolutely. Um, some you've heard about, some you haven't heard about, and we have two women today who are very polar opposites I'm thinking (laughs) mine's a banger mine is a secret banger everyone (laughs) is going to know okay everyone is going to want to know why they don't know Mary Phelps Jake Jacob Phelps aka Cress Crosby Right. right 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 um but before we get into it, because you might not know who my person is, you'd probably know who Allie's person is, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you're busy. You are putting the tinsel on the tree mm-hmm. or lighting, or the lighting your menorah. menorah. So there's a lot of pyrotechnics going on and you don't want to light your phone on fire when you look up these women and what they look like. So in order to get a picture in your head while we're telling their stories, we're going to describe them for you today. We are going to get a little... Physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing St. Teresa of Calcutta, Ooh. who's better known as Mother Teresa. She is five foot nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and an Albanian woman with hair that whitened over the years, although you don't see it, and dark eyes. She has an olive complexion and is easily identifiable by her white and blue robes, which are a sari, mm-hmm. um, and her cross rosary. St. Teresa of Calcutta typically has on a brave face in times of distress, but a kind demeanor that lets you know that you're safe when you're with her. Is she Indian? 
No, she's an Indian citizen, but she was not born in India. Interesting. Okay. She was born in, well, we'll talk about it. Okay, yeah, we'll confusing. find out. But I feel like You'll her wrinkles out. mask anything else that I would picture of her face. Yeah, she is not a white woman. Okay, okay. So that's good to know. Yep. All right. Well, I am doing Mary Jacobs Phelps, a.k.a. Caress Crosby. Um <laughs> Sarah Blakely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, she had a round face with pale skin. She had dark hair that was cut into a very typical like 1920s bob. Um, she had slightly wide set, hooded eyes and thin lips, which exposed a nice petite smile. Um, we don't really know much about her height or anything like that, but we do know that she had a rather large chest, which was kind of difficult to fit into corsets. Um, and she later in life was topless a lot. Um, so <laughs> probably for that reason. So, um, yeah, that's what she looks like. It's kind of hard to describe. She just looks like a basic 1920s woman. Okay. Um, so, yeah. That's... I don't have any idea what she looks like. I know in okay. general what she did, but yes. I don't know what she looks like. Okay, perfect. I'm very excited about that. All right. Well, before we um, get into the stories, we have to get into this drink, this icy blue Arctic looking drink. Allie, what is this? So this is called The Love Anyway, because, you know, her super famous quote, like people are gonna hate you love anyway people are gonna do this do this anyway like you know I wish you would have put that on the podcast description today <laughs> oh my god yeah okay everybody I we have to bring it up because it's so funny well, to me you know what we should do we will post the picture of it and be yes. like this is because I was researching two episodes at one time pretty much everybody I posted a mother Teresa quote from her personal journal on the fun Christmas episode by accident. So it looked like I was calling out to my faith, like on Apple iTunes. It was um, the funniest thing to happen at 8 a.m. to me this week. So it was so perfect. Um, I'm, I'm really happy about it. But um, this is one ounce of vodka. A half an ounce of pineapple juice, a half an ounce of blue curacao, which I had to buy a new one because remember last Ooh, time we finished yes, it. Yes, we did finish it. Uh, a half an ounce of cream of coconut, and then you garnish the glass with coconut flakes. And of course, what I was going off of is Katie's drink when we did Mary, Mother of Jesus, <gasps> yeah. last Christmas. Uh-huh. But I wanted to just have it be the white and blue of the sari that she always wears. Yes. All so, right. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. oh it's so good I love it mm. I love it the coconut and the blue curacao work so good together and I do I coconut cream of coconut is so annoying to work with but the payoff is so good because it's it is. it's delicious and it makes the drink just a little bit creamy but not mm-hmm. like a heavy cream creamy right and if you were to like put this in a blender it would be a mm. great blender drink and I think at that point it'd be like an Elsa you know mm-hmm. what I mean? If it was a blender drink, it would yeah. be something that you would do for um, Queen Elsa. Ah, very tastely, tasty and delightfully tropical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like Mother Teresa, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Katie. Yeah, everyone describes Mother Teresa as creamy and tropical. And delightfully tropical. <laughs> Can you tell me what you know about um saint Teresa of calcutta okay so i think she was like a catholic nun i might even be wrong about that i'm not 100 percent sure i know that she is the go-to person for like who do you think you are mother Teresa? when like you want to be doing something good um but then i i feel like there's a lot of 
there are some people who are, think that she was a bad person. Um, so I'm interested to hear why they think that because I don't understand because every picture of her is always like with tons of children around her. So I'm guessing she like did things for kids. Mm. Um, but yeah, she's just this like cultural touchstone that I know nothing about and I throw her name around as if she is my mother. Right. So um, exactly. I would love to know more about her. India's grandma. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So the reason I picked Mother Teresa for this episode was obviously she's a banger. So we wanted yeah. to have at least one banger at the beginning of the season for mm-hmm. our season opener. But then also with Christmas coming up, I wanted to do just like a solidly good person. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of critiques of her. So I'm yeah. going to get to those. They're all okay. in here. You kind of have to wait till the end, but they're all in here. Okay. Um, and then I also wanted to very humbly point out that I, being somebody who was born and raised in a Christian school and Katie too, we tend to pick on Christianity a oh, lot yeah. and we do not disrespect Christianity. I went to 12 years of Christian school so that I could do that. Right. We <laughs> earned our stripes. Yes, we um, did. Uh, and yeah. as, as two people who were like, I'm not mad at Christianity. No, like, not at all. Not no. mad at So we pick on it a lot, but I wanted people to know that like there are some very good amazing christians in the world and some of them are badass women and we're here for that yeah so that's a really good point to me i I did want to say that because sometimes we're a little hard (laughs) on the christians in general so sorry um okay agnes gonya boyajou was born on august 26 1910 in what is present day Macedonia, hmm. but her parents are Albanian because it's an ethnic group. And at that time it was still part of the Ottoman empire. So this is that little um, area in Europe above Greece that has like seven countries that has changed uh-huh. hands a million times. Thank you for describing. Cause you said a bunch of names of places. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I feel so fucking dumb that I like cannot put it on a map. They're all right there. It's like okay. Serbia, Croatia, Herzegovina. You know, it's like this whole okay. little chunk right above Greece. And it has changed okay. hands so much in the last hundred years. So they're like kind of Slavic, kind of Greek, kind of right. Italian. Like there's a lot of things lots going of Turkish, on. Okay. Lots of Turkish. And that's why there's so many ethnic wars there. Because it's okay. all these people trying to like, you know, take control of governments and rule their people, but not the other people. You know, very confusing. Yeah. Um, so she was baptized the day after her birth, which would be August 27th, 1910. And after that, she celebrated that as her true birthday, her baptism for the rest of her life. She was the youngest of three siblings. Her father was a part of like the Albanian business political community. But when she was eight years old, he died leaving a single mother to raise three children in 1919 Europe. My God. So not good. So the mom decides our family should stay close to the church because all these kids are dealing with the fact that their father died and their mom wants to guide them through the fact that they're losing their status in society. They're losing their money. And according to the biography about her life, which I should say, sources are hard to come by on Mother Teresa unless you want somebody to A, tear her a new one or you want to read a book by a Catholic minister. Okay. So it's like literally two sides of the corn and there's no one in the middle except for me. (laughs) You're welcome, everybody. Lighting the lamp of the middle path. (laughs) Let your light shine, shine, (laughs) shine. Okay. um, Yeah, the middle path. Thank you, Buddha. Mother Teresa would not be happy with that. So um, based on one of the 
biographies about her life, Teresa was, and still Agnes at this time, which is a cognate for Agnes, okay. but it's just kind of spelled different okay. and pronounced different. So it's not. <laughs> so it's not Agnes at all. It's not. But a lot. <laughs> there are a lot of like YouTube videos that call her Agnes, but it's like Agnes. Okay. You know, it's very different. Okay. Anyway, uh, she was fascinated with the stories of missionaries that like traveled into India, like her whole childhood. So by the age of 12, she was like convinced that she needed to dedicate her life to Christianity. This is like the age like Joan of Arc was when oh, she yeah. was hearing voices. Like if we get, I mean, you know, they're like 500 years apart, but same deal. And she grew through her teenage years to pray and meditate and her resolve got stronger and stronger as she felt her calling. So she leaves home in 1928 at the age of 18 to join the Sisters of Loretto, which is an order of nuns in Ireland because you had to learn English to be a missionary in India Hmm. because that was like the language of the mission. Okay. So to be clear, she's 18 and leaves home never sees her family again her mom or her two siblings ever again crazy however after their death she went back and like tended to their graves huh and it's like couldn't you have visited like once like even (laughs) once and i know you're busy saving the world yeah but like come on um but her family was kind of split on opinions about her leaving her mom was like, okay, I support you. I love you no matter what you decide to do. Her older brother, who had been the man of the house, was like, no. Like, I don't want you to go. He really, really did not want her to go. Was it just because he was like, we need you here or I think, it's I too think, dangerous? Or? Yeah, I think it was part, like, danger, part we need you here, part, like, helplessness like he didn't yeah. know you know what I mean he's the man of the house his dad died when he was young too and he'd yeah. been trying to help his mom and two sisters so. I also wonder if it's kind of a thing of like how dare you leave when like I literally cannot yeah I have to stay here and help everyone yeah. so Ugh, that's a lot of emotions <laughs> it is so Agnes arrived in India in 1929 that's where the sisters of Loretta sent her because it's where she wanted to go and she began her work in lower India or Sorry, in the lower Himalayas, which is northwest India. Mm -hmm. And she learned Bengali as a language and taught at a school um, near her convent. Agnes took her first religious vows on May 24th, 1931. And that is when she chose the name Teresa. Hmm. Now, Teresa with an H is the patron saint of missionaries. But another nun at the convent had already chosen that name. So she chose the Spanish spelling Teresa without an H which is why you hear a lot of pronunciation when people say Mother Teresa it's a Spanish spelling of the name Teresa that's so interesting I've always thought of it with an H yeah Hmm. there's no H well I'm glad you said something because sometimes I spell the names wrong on cocktail Tuesdays and I feel like an idiot sometimes I change them (laughs) um but that's okay I spell I use the wrong forms of your and your so who cares I'm there and there so this is her simple vow She took her simple vow in 1931, which is just your traditional nun vow, like not going to get married, going to work for the church, blah, blah, blah. 1937, six years later, she takes her solemn vow, which is much more intense. It's a vow or a promise made to God about creating a better good on earth. So she takes this vow while she's working at the 
convent in eastern Calcutta. She had served at this school for 17 years and was appointed the headmistress. She loved teaching, but was increasingly disturbed by the poverty that she saw surrounding her in India. The Bengal famine had happened in 1943, bringing misery and death to the city. And then, you know, there's an extreme period in 1946 of Muslim Hindu violence that she's like watching happen, like right outside her doors. And I want to say that like poorness for us in the United States, we just think like we're a rich country and everybody else is poor. But there's like so many levels of poverty that we just don't understand and there are sections of countries that are insanely wealthy and then like you know two miles away you have like the slums which it's I feel like it's easy for me to understand because I live in a large house eight minutes from Baltimore City oh yeah and you wouldn't know that there's a difference but there really is poverty exists in all shapes and sizes oh yeah well and like as a person who lived in india for a couple months like it really is like you know you're in this beautiful high-rise building and then you walk outside and it's literally just all over the place you know and it's like, like you're saying a person who's lived in baltimore city their whole life like i used to live on the corner of st paul and north avenue and north avenue is a <laughs> notoriously Notorious. bad place to live like it's the baltimore I, bronx i saw like the annotated map of baltimore and like north avenue was just called nothing but trouble like <laughs> <laughs> but yeah north and, and 25th yeah <laughs> i think that people just think of it as like no here are the slums and like here's the other part and it's like it is more entwined than you could it's like ever. braided hair yeah <laughs> Like literally like a nice French braid. <laughs> right. Everything is mixed together. You've yeah. got the rich, the poor, and the middles. Right. And the together. fact of the matter is, once you see that, you're like, oh, so people are seeing this and are completely ignoring, ignoring it. Ignoring it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what she's thinking. Yeah. People are seeing this and they're completely ignoring it. And then I listened to a couple podcasts by missionaries who had gone to Calcutta after Mother Teresa had passed Mm -hmm. and they were like I was there for two weeks and I came home with PTSD based on the things I saw like I cannot believe she did this for her entire life yeah um so and I mean also I mean and that draws a lot of criticism but also like Mother Teresa like gave up everything to live like that for her entire life. So it's not like she was like, oh, I'm going to come and help. And then I'm going to bounce back home. She was like, I'm going to live here. So September 10th, 1946, Teresa is on a trip by train to Dargaling. Darjeeling. Darjeeling. (laughs) Have it. Okay. (laughs) Teresa is on a trip by train to Darjeeling where she heard a call of her inner conscience that she calls a call within a call because she was already a nun. She's already following her call, but Jesus wanted more from her. She's on this yearly retreat and she's like, Oh my God, I have to get, well, she probably didn't say that. That's the second commandment. Yeah. <laughs> she, she did not use the Lord's name in vain. Oh my word. Um, I, I have to serve the poor, not by just teaching them, but I need to literally stay among them. I need to change my life. I need to go and serve and, in her Christian words, save them. Uh, In her words, she specifically said, I was to leave the convent and help the poor while living among them. It was an order. To fail would have been to break my faith. 
No one knew at the time, but Sister Teresa was now in the process of becoming Mother Teresa. So sister is a term for a a nun, but mother is a term used to refer to a superior, like Mm -hmm. somebody who's been given a superior power, like Maggie Smith in... That Whoopi Goldberg movie, Sister Act. <laughs> Maggie Smith was in Sister Act? Yeah, she's one of the nuns. She's the head nun. <laughs> she's like Mother Superior. I do. Calm down. I need to rewatch that movie. But Sister Act 2 is better because Lauren really? Hill's in it. Uh, oh. Okay. My kids love Sister Act 2. <laughs> I didn't even let them watch the first one. I was like, let's jump right to it. Okay, so because of this call, she leaves the school where she'd been working for almost two decades and founds what's known as the Missionaries of Charity. Now, she went on at this time to, like, remove her traditional monastic habit. She's like, I'm not wearing this black thing anymore. I'm going to wear a white and blue sari. So that's where this comes from. She wants to blend in with the general population where she's living. Teresa then adopted Indian citizenship. She spent months in Patina or Patna to receive basic medical training at Holy Family Hospital. Here she began venturing into the quote unquote slums where she founded another school and began tending to poor and hungry. By the beginning of 1949, she was joined by a group of other women who like had heard her call. So like 13 or 14 other women are like, yes, we're here. Um, And now this is where she's laying the foundation for a new religious community whose goal was to serve the poorest of the poor. While she was doing um, what would eventually catch the eye of the Indian prime minister and the pope and all these other people, her first year, she has no income. She has no permission to be doing this. She's begging for food and supplies in the streets, just like everybody else in Calcutta. She is, um, you know, walking around trying to figure out how to help people when she has literally nothing And she has all these multiple journals. And one of the things she said, our Lord wants us to be a free nun covered with the poverty of the cross. Today, I learned a good lesson. The poverty of the poor must be so hard for them. While I was looking for a home, I walked and walked till my arms and legs ached. I thought how much they must ache in body and soul looking for a home, food and health. Then the comfort of Loretto, which is her former convent, came to tempt me. You have only to say the word and all that will be yours again, the tempter kept on saying. So she's in her journals very regularly writing, I want to go home. I don't want to do this. And none of this came out till after her death. And a lot of Catholic people had a big problem with this. They were like, she cannot be a saint if she doubted God that much but to me that makes her more real oh my gosh absolutely it's like <laughs> if she did it i can do it mm-hmm. yeah and it also i think it in a weird way kind of like is acknowledging like her privilege of like she's like i could stop this at any moment and like these people cannot and like highlighting that because if you don't hear her admit it you might think like oh like she left forever and she couldn't go back she's like oh no i could go back at any point in time because like i was a privileged person from another country who like had that option always right you know and i had the connections and like i don't like i it makes me like her so much more it makes me yeah. say oh she was struggling but she still did it i could do that 
Yeah. Like I can help that way. Yeah. Whereas like I think people look at the word saint and they want you to be perfect. Yeah. And it's like I'm not Catholic. My dad's Catholic. So like I get the vibe. But like for me, it's like it's very hard for me to think that saints are perfect. Yeah. So this is all happening. She's writing all this in journals her whole time doing this. So on October 7th, 1950, she received Vatican permission for the missionaries of charity, which sounds kind of silly, but that means they get funding for the idea. So it's like, now I have a money. So her job now in like the mission statement for the missionaries of charity is to care for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people that have become a burden to the society and are shunned by everyone. That's a big job Mm -hmm. so Teresa then opens with this money and funding her first hospice she converted an abandoned Hindu temple into a home for the dying and it was free to the poor those who came received medical attention and the opportunity to die with dignity Mm. Muslims were read the Quran Hindus were brought water from the Ganges Catholics received sacraments and it was said that people were given a beautiful death and felt loved at the end. I do like that because I would have been kind of upset if she was like, you can die here and come here, but you have to receive the sacraments. Right. And some people get mad because she did baptize a lot of people on their deathbed. But it sounded like it depends on the source. There's some people like she's baptizing people without their permission and that's not okay. But I think that was kind of for her peace of mind because then there were other sources that were like, if I was fully conscious and saying I'm Hindu, I want water from the Ganges, then they brought me that. Yeah. So I don't know. It's very hard to say, but it did. It sounds very much like she was taking care of all of these religious beliefs. Yeah. She then opened a hospice for leprosy and established leprosy outreach clinics throughout Calcutta and provided medical treatment and dressings and food for these people. But by then, because of all the death happening in this area, her mission starts to take on a high number of homeless children. So she opens a children's home called the Home of the Immaculate Heart. Her congregation began to attract recruits and donations all throughout the 1960s. And she owns or she opens hospices and orphanages and leper houses all throughout India. I mean, they're all over. So then the Catholic Church is like, hey, we super like you. Come do bigger and better things. And she's like, "Uh, no, this is my calling. If I just go to the Vatican, then I'm like breaking my call to God. And then Pope, the Pope comes to visit India to see her and he's like okay I'm ready to see Teresa and she's like I'm too busy and (laughs) while you think that would piss him off it just impressed him even more right he was like whoa this woman doesn't give a shit that the Pope came to see her so he's like well I've been driving around in this Lincoln car I'm gonna give it to her and she goes okay and takes it and (laughs) sells it and then gives the money to the poor there we go yeah I mean what does she need a Lincoln for she could also pick them up and brought them to the place (laughs) (laughs) you're a taxi now (laughs) you're a mother are you dying get in the car did she start uber (laughs) maybe (laughs) (laughs) she then expands this internationally and opens a house 
for the Sick in Venezuela. And this is followed by houses in Italy, Tanzania, and Austria. And in the 70s, she opens her first house in the United States. She also opens dozens of houses in Asia, Africa, and Europe, which her first house in the United States was in the Bronx in New York City. Wow. Then her organization, the Missionary of Charities, began to pick up steam. Priests, nuns, clergy, non-clergy, Catholics, non-Catholics, people from all over the world start working with and for her organization to help, quote, the poorest of the poor. And Teresa sang, by blood, I'm Albanian, by citizenship, an Indian, by faith, a Catholic. As of my calling, I belong to the world. And as to my heart, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. Damn, girl. Big statement. Big, <laughs> big guns she's pulling out. She became fluent in five languages. Wow. Bengali, Albanian, Serbian, English, and Hindi. At the height of the siege of Beirut in 1982, Teresa rescued 37 children trapped in a frontline hospital by brokering a temporary ceasefire between the Israeli and Pakistani fighters. That's insane. She's like, you two people who've hated each other since Bible times, can you just let me go save these kids real quick? And they're like, okay, (laughs) sure, sure, babe. So she goes in with the Red Cross and like carries like physically this five nothing woman is carrying children. Oh, my God. Out of the war zone. That's insane. I know. So she's putting her efforts into getting some of her mission houses into communist countries in the 80s, which, of course, they don't want her because obviously they're communists and they're trying to have total control. Um And she starts to receive some criticism in the 80s from a lot of feminist or women's rights groups because of her very strong Catholic beliefs against abortion, contraception, and divorce, which we're going to touch on later. But I wanted to say it now so you know, like, I am going to talk about it. And it is a very strong Catholic thing. Yeah. As far as some people say, she never pushed her beliefs on other people. But some people say... Yeah, she did. Yeah. Um, In the 80s and 90s, she assisted the um, Hungary and Ethiopia. She visits the radiation victims in Chernobyl. She's going to earthquake victims in Armenia. She's just all over. But the last 10 years of her life were riddled with health problems. In 1983, she suffered her first heart attack in Rome while visiting Pope John Paul II. This was followed several years later with a second heart attack of which she received a artificial pacemaker. And then in 91, she gets pneumonia in oh Mexico. God. And I mean, it's because she's, she's, over the place. she's living in the worst cities in the world. Yeah. It's not like, you know what I mean? And she's like, she's depriving herself of things, which is another thing that she gets criticism for yeah. pretty often. So she gets pneumonia in Mexico and then she tries to resign as the head of the missionaries of charity, but they vote against it. So she stays. But then in 1996, she fell and broke her collarbone. And four months later, she ends up with malaria and then heart failure. Oh, my God. And even though she has heart surgery, her heart and her health were declining. So the Archbishop of Calcutta, with her permission, says, you must be under attack from the devil and performs an exorcism. (gasps) Oh, my God. Mother Teresa has an exorcism because her health was due to her spiritual failings is what she believed. She truly believed that that was why she was getting sick, not because she was old and living in poverty for the last multiple decades. Right. Um, 
So on March 13th, 1997, Teresa resigned as head of the Missionaries of Charity, and she passed away September 5th that same year. She lay in repose in the open casket in St. Thomas of Calcutta for a week before her funeral. She received a state's funeral in India, which was never given to religious people. The Pope um, representative did her last rites. Her death was mourned by secular and religious people around the world. And it happened like very shortly after the death of Princess Diana. So it was like, bam, bam. You know, yeah. like these people who people saw as like good charity workers. Yeah. Um, the security general of the, or sorry, the secretary general of the UN said at the time, she is the United Nations. She is peace in the world. Which reminds me so deeply of that Bible verse, God is love. Yeah. It's like Teresa just isn't a, like a messenger. She is right. the United Nations, which yeah. is very cool. She received in her life 124 awards and honors. The first were recognized by India because that's where she was back in the 60s. And she got awards from them periodically throughout the decades. Um, she's actually even worshipped as a deity by some Hindu people. Hmm. Um India made a coin in her honor on the 100th anniversary of her birth. Other than India, though, she received peace awards all over Asia. There are documentaries and books about her life. She received awards from the Catholic Church, which also quickly progresses you on the way to sainthood. And she was made an honorary citizen of the United States, which I don't know why the fuck that matters. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, she won the Nobel Peace Prize, among other prestigious awards. Now, the Nobel Peace Prize, when she heard that she had won, she said, I am unworthy of this award and do not want it. Um, but she made remarks to the audience about it. And she says, all I want you to get out of this is to understand and be aware of the condition of the poor. She also re refused the uh, ceremonial banquet and asked that the costs of the banquet be given to the poor of India, which it was to about $200,000 oh from the banquet. Um, See, and I, I like that though, because yeah. like it's again, her kind of standing by this mission of like, no, like any sort of cost associated with this it. thing. I don't want it. Just like you're awarding me for the work. So help me do the work. Right. Exactly. Like you want peace in the world. Don't have a whole bunch of fancy people dress up and come to a dinner about right. me. Like send the money away. Yeah. So she does have critics, as we said. There are many people living in Calcutta that say their city was portrayed incorrectly to the world. Oh. They feel like everybody thinks that. There's just people just with these open seeping wounds and like there's nothing in Calcutta except for poor, miserable people. So that that's one complaint against her. There are other people that complain that there are mismanaged funds in her organization, which to be fair, it's a multi thousand person organization. Like, right. What happened? I'm sure Mother Teresa was not the economic like right, she's not the CFO she, right, of this organization. Exactly, exactly. Like nonprofits is usually not the person with the good idea. Yeah. So if the funds were mismanaged, which I'm sure they were because it's the archdiocese oh, yeah. and they love mismanaging funds. Mm -hmm. um, I don't believe that that was necessarily Mother Teresa's fault. Right. Uh, although it is crazy. Um, 
But then some people go, but yeah, like the money was mismanaged and the nurses in these places aren't trained and people got wrong diagnoses and they were baptized without positions. And it's like, okay, but unless you're calling in doctors without borders, like who's going to do the real work in these places? So like the, the criticism is valid. Yeah. But it's also like, but, but but who's going to be there otherwise? Yeah. So still others say that her Catholic stance on contraceptives, which I get behind this one, is her biggest flaw. Abortion, fine. Divorce, fine. But what's keeping women, the poorest of the poor, is their absolute need of the livestock version of compulsory reproduction. And Mother Teresa just doesn't believe at all in contraception. Like any form. No. And Catholic, the Catholic faith in general does not believe in any contraception. It's seen as as bad as abortion because you are stopping that baby from existing. That's ridiculous. Right. So it's, it's really hard because you have these countries with the, who are overpopulated and who, um, are, you know, don't get the same sex education and have zero contraceptives. And then you're just telling women to like deal with it. And it's right. like, right, but you're trying to save the poor, but you're keeping me poor by letting this happen. Right. Um, so that's a really hard one because I've always struggled with people who are totally against contraception. It it's doesn't like, make any sense to me. It doesn't. I can, I can get behind. Like when I have debates with my parents about abortion, I'm like, I see your point. I don't agree with it, but I see it. I do right. not see your point on contraception. It literally makes no sense because the biggest, like if you are so keen on fighting abortion, the easiest way to do that is to make contraception like more widely available exactly. for people. Right. Like, it's so frustrating. Right. But it's seen as so against God's will. It's like if God had willed that child to be born and you prevented it. I don't know. It's a very, it's a very like God's will argument. And it's the yeah. one argument against her that I'm like, yeah, that's not okay. Because there's a lot no. of women in Calcutta who needed contraception. And also like, I just, I, I think the God's will argument is so flimsy most of the time. Oh, yeah. People like, pray for that on their football team. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> no, it, it, like it was God's will for this to happen. It's like, oh, is it God's will for like my parent to get sick and like whatever like you know what I'm saying it's like that doesn't make me feel okay like (laughs) it doesn't make me like God very much no (laughs) yeah so that's a big one that everybody in the world a lot of people in the world struggle with yeah Um, also if it would like if it was God's if God's will was driving the whole world then it was God's will for people to find contraception and like make it and sell it you know what I'm saying science is bad I'm sorry I forgot I forgot that wasn't on my Bible quiz. Um, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so, she also has very traditional views about womanhood, saying that most women put more value in things like jobs and positions instead of just loving, which is like, well, <laughs> can it be both? <laughs> can it be both? <laughs> um, some say, though, that her influence on her group of Catholics is a little bit more cult-like. And there's a book called Mother Teresa Theory Theory and Practice. And it was about how the nuns that worked for her, like, had this, like, compulsory suffering. And, like, they weren't allowed to have heat. And they weren't allowed to sleep on beds. And it was like, you had to be poor. It, and they said it was almost like when people used to lash themselves with a cat and nine tail. Yeah. It's like, you don't have to suffer to help the suffering. 
right is what a lot of people argue towards that it's like listen you can wash someone's feet like jesus did in the bible and then still go drink some wine in a rich guy's upstairs right like there's a back and forth with it and yeah. people get upset about it yeah um so even Teresa doubted herself sometimes saying and this is the quote Boop that I put on the, <laughs> on, the on the Rudolph episode <laughs> <laughs> on the Rudolph episode this morning, um, saying and this really actually kind of brought like chills to me. Where is my faith? Even deep down, there's nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Mm. So to know that she was feeling like that, it's like what a good person living in like such a hard situation and is still really struggling. Yeah. So by 2007, the Missionaries of Charity numbered at 450 brothers and 5,000 sisters worldwide, operating 600 missions, schools, and shelters in 120 countries. After Teresa's death, members of the Catholic Church conducted interviews of those who lived near her and collected letters and journals written by her to prove her virtue and put her on her way to sainthood. They collected 35,000 pages in order to get her canonized. One thing about canonization, though, which is bullshit, (laughs) is that it requires a proven miracle. You cannot be a saint unless you have done a miracle that has been proven. Proven. Proven miracle. Okay. So in 2002, the Vatican recognized a miracle that this woman used a locket with a picture of Mother Teresa and rubbed it on her tumor and she was healed. Huh. Uh, The doctor who treated her was like, it was a cyst. It was tuberculosis. (laughs) It wasn't a tumor at all. She took medicine. (laughs) And I just think, like, I understand that sainthood hundreds of years ago, like, things like that looked like miracles. But, like, I would rather respect Mother Teresa for the good things she did do instead of making up miracles. Yeah. Because I do believe sometimes things happen and we can't explain them. And maybe they are by some you know, big, bigger power that I don't understand. But like, why do we have to like write things down on paper that she did when we know what she did? Right. And it doesn't help the case that she was a good person worthy (laughs) of this. If you're fucking lying about it, like that doesn't make it, it, it gives fuel to the flame that like she was a horrible, corrupt person or whatever. A bad taste in people's mouth. And she wasn't even alive for this. Yeah. Like, she doesn't even have a say. She can't even be like, no, that wasn't me. I feel like the Catholic Church just is always thinking they're like, no, this is the right thing. And you're like, oh, my gosh, if you just don't do that. Right. There. I mean, obviously, there are tons of problems with the Catholic Church. But like, yeah, it's like just fucking stop. Could we just say she was a good person? I think she's a saint. Yeah. Okay. Like, excellent. Yeah. Um. After much scrutiny and debate, Mother Teresa became blessed, which is like the first step to saintism. And that was in 2003. But then in 2015, the Vatican press office confirmed that Pope Francis recognized a second miracle. (gasps) 
attributed to Teresa. And it was the healing of a Brazilian man who had multiple brain tumors. Um, so Francis. Need to give it a rest. Oh yeah, for real. I mean, Francis, I'm down for you because you like gay people. But like, come on. Yeah. They were probably like back in the day. Like these rules make a lot of sense because miracles happen all the fucking time. And now we're like, like they didn't get science. Right. And now they're like wow, miracles are a bit harder to come by. And it's like, I wish a Pope would just be like, let's just not. Yeah. And it's almost why I think Francis was just like, let's just make her a saint. I don't care what we say because she's a good person. So Francis canonized her on September 4th, 2016 in St. Peter's Square in Vatican. And it was televised and her hometown celebrated for a week. Thousands of poor from across Italy were let to visit the Vatican and watch the ceremony live. And there's a bronze statue of Mother Teresa holding a child, which is so important. And um, she has a day named after her, you know, in Albania on roads and churches and schools. But, like, she was just a good person. And I know there's, like, a lot of shit that goes along with it. But I just don't think you can be a good person without being criticized, which is oh, why yeah. I named the drink Love Anyway, because – it's her most famous quote, and every time I read it, I get inspired to be a better person. Yeah. And she said, people are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough, but give your best anyway. You see... In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Mm. Wow. And that is Mother Teresa. Very interesting. (laughs) St. Teresa of Calcutta. So I don't get in trouble for (laughs) calling her Mother Teresa. No, that was great. And I love that, that quote that you ended on. It was so good and kind of. I think addresses a lot of the hypocrisy in organized religion. Right. Where she's like, I did good, but like I, people are going to fuck it up. Yeah. There's nothing I can do about that. Yeah. And also like, it gives you kind of hope that's like, yeah, you know what? A lot of the things you do, people aren't going to fucking notice. Yeah. Like you have to keep going. Do it anyway. Do it anyways. Mm. Let's get more. All right. Let's get more dreams. I want to talk talk about about a trashy woman. This is Stephanie and Tux <laughs> from the podcast Beyond Reproach, a show about political scandals from American history, but it's fun, we swear. The idea behind our show is that politicians and government officials are meant to be public servants and their behavior should be beyond reproach, but if history has taught us anything, it's that a lot of politicians are total scumbags. So we decided to do a show where we drink period-appropriate historic cocktails while exploring some of the government scandals and shitty politicians of America's past. We are not historians. We're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, 
good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. America's history is juicy. We just add gin. Uh, well, that might be the second most interesting break we've ever had. Definitely up there. It's up there. Um, so the listeners, obviously, no time has passed for you at all. Um, but it's been <laughs> quite some time for us here in the podcast studio yeah. because Santa Claus came to town. <laughs> Literally. Literally. To, <laughs> to town on a fire train. Um, Allie and I <laughs> were making cocktails and out Allie's back window, we see a whole bunch of fire trucks and ambulances. And we thought... That someone was in trouble down there. And we were like, oh my. Oh my goodness. What would Mother Teresa do? Um, I mean, we did the opposite. We just gawked. Right. Um, <laughs> we don't help the poor. But then it was you. You were like, no, Santa Claus is riding that fire truck. <laughs> <laughs> he just, his, like, his like verbose beard. Like, oh my God. It, it was shining. It, it was called shining. To me. It called to me. As only a fake beard can. So then I couldn't, we couldn't leave my children to oh, experience God, no. this alone. No. So we all went out. Um. To the street and shivered and waited for Santa to drive by. Oh, it was perfect. And um, your younger daughter was holding a wine glass full of orange juice. And I was like, Eliza, you can't let Santa see you drinking what looks to be wine or like a mimosa. Meanwhile, she's like, he'll know. Yeah, he'll, he, <laughs> she's like, he knows. He knows that I'm good. He gets it. Um, <laughs> uh, so here, you've experienced a first with my children. How did it yeah, feel? I loved it. I best. love when like. I'm around for things like that. Mm. It makes me so happy. Well, you have been here for 6,000 um, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was great because it was a surprise thing. So they had obviously no idea that that was happening because who would? Um. <laughs> fire Santa. Tell us about your fire truck, Santa. Uh, I loved it. So, but we're not here to talk about Santa. No. Um. <laughs> we're here to talk about this drink. I need to know what I'm yes. drinking for this amazing woman that I hear is very different She's from Mother Teresa. Wild. Okay. So I, this is a drink. It's kind of a twist on a drink called the Hanky Panky. Oh. Um, and I named this cocktail after one of her favorite things to say, which was always yes. She would have been a great improver. Um, <laughs> so it is gin, sweet vermouth, equal parts of that. I did like an ounce and a half, an ounce of fresh orange juice, uh, a teaspoon of maraschino cherry juice. So like the juice straight out the bottle. Um, and then a half ounce jar, really. of jar. <laughs> <laughs> and then a half ounce of Fernet Branca. And then you shake that up and then you garnish it. like So you kind of wrap a maraschino cherry in an orange peel and pin it all together. Mm. Um, and cheers. Cheers. I'm going to say yes to this cocktail. <laughs> and uh, it is the exact opposite of what we just drank. Yes, it is. It's very bitter. And I mean, good. Yeah. Um, It's the opposite color. Yeah, it is. And it's the opposite like senses on my taste buds. Yeah. Like I feel like my taste buds are honestly like uh, just a little bit shocked because like I like a bitter cocktail, but after going from like sweet coconut. <laughs> Yeah. It's a little much, but I do like it. If you like bitter cocktails, like, oh, I mean, yeah. get yourself some Fernet Branca because that's what is doing it here. <laughs> yeah, this is great. I mean, we did not cleanse the palate unless you count a fireman's, a first responder Santa Claus. Yes. <laughs> that was our palate cleanse. That's so. the best palate cleanser, though. Um, <laughs> so, Allie, what do you know about Mary Jacob Phelps, a.k.a. Caress Crosby? I think the literal only thing I know is, like, inventor of the bra. Like, I think mm -hmm. she was stacked and mm -hmm. was, like, not here for, like, the undergarments of the human women, which mm -hmm. is why I earlier mentioned Sarah Blakely, obviously the... Um, Developer of Spanx. 
Yes. That's why I mentioned that in the um, whatever we do at the beginning. Yeah, because I didn't realize that. So I'm glad you clarified that. I was like, am I supposed to? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, she, I'm on her LinkedIn. Uh, really, I just follow her. She knows nothing about me. Yeah. But uh, she's just like the uh, one of the greatest female entrepreneurs of our time for yeah. creating a female undergarment. Well, it's funny because I've listened to her um, mm-hmm. how, to, how I built this. Yeah. And I loved it. She's endlessly fascinating. She, but I couldn't remember incredible. her name. Incredible. And she just did like a really cute post like where I was where I am like uh-huh. post and it's oh, like yeah. her with her like first Spanx booth ah. <laughs> and she just looks you know she looks rich now she looks yeah. poor then yeah. and now she looks rich <laughs> and blonde and happy oh so. man I wonder if I'll ever have an after photo <gasps> good for her <laughs> Okay, but I really want to know about this version of the undergarment creator. Okay, so I got most of this from Wikipedia, and I did buy her autobiography, The Passionate Years. Look at you. I know. It was $3 for the Kindle version. You booked it. Absolutely. Sometimes you got to. Um, And then I read the um, free first couple chapters of the book about her, um, one of her lover's second husbands, Harry Crosby, which is where she obviously gets her second name, um, called The Black Sun. So I just got a lot of little bits of information from all over the place. Um, Okay. Because her autobiography, like some people say, like cannot be trusted. (laughs) Oh, that's like (laughs) Madame Trussaud who wrote her autobiography. And they're like, none of that's true. (laughs) She's like King Louis, like literally bowed to me. (laughs) No, no. he didn't. (laughs) Um, Okay. So Mary Jacob Phelps was born on April 20th, 1891 in New Rochelle, New York. She was the oldest daughter, always saying that she would have hated not to be. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, Her parents were Mary Phelps and William Hearn Jacob. So it's kind of interesting. She took her mother's maiden name as her middle name, which I kind of love. No, actually, no, I'm sorry. As her last name. And then her father's name as her middle name. I know. I don't know what's up there. What a jumble. Um, (laughs) My mom's maiden name is my little brother's middle name. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, so she had two brothers, Leonard and Walter. Um, Walter's name was Bud. Um, and of it was. even though her life and the name of our cocktail starts off with her being named Mary. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot I changed the name of the cocktail. It's called Always Yes. It's called Always Yes. Not my other name, which would... I'm not even going to say because I can't even remember it, but it started with the name Mary. Okay. Um, <laughs> Mary Coy Contrary. Yep. <laughs> uh, but no one called her that. <laughs> um, everyone called her Polly from a very young age to distinguish herself from her mother. So Polly's family was not the wealthiest family in the wealthy area where they resided, but they did have some of the noblest bloodlines, including some of the Plymouth Puritans, notably William Bradford, Plymouth's first mayor. Wow. I know. Uh, She was also related to Robert Fulton, the inventor of the steam engine, which is really exciting. Seriously, Um, look at that. uh, And of course, being with the time, she was raised to ride the hounds, sail boats, and lead cotillions. And she was even presented to the King of England at a dinner party in 1914, Crazy stuff. Uh, it's just like, we we weren't that wealthy. It's like, you met the fucking king of England. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, you were wealthy. Um, Polly would go on to describe her child- childhood as very privileged, saying that she lived in a world where only good smells existed, which is such an interesting way to phrase that, because let's be frank, like the 1800s, like probably did not smell fantastic for most people. And I kind of love that it's like a privilege that I never even thought of that, like your life smells good. 
It is. It's a very interesting one. And I also like like that now companies like specialize in making common people smells like yeah. man cans. Yeah. Like, I bought one that smells like sawdust because that's what my dad <laughs> smells like. Yeah. And I've just always been like that to me smells like home. Yeah. Whereas some people it's like, get me that lavender. I want a peony. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but her father kind of relied on his legacy and spent more money than he was really bringing in. <laughs> Polly said, my father was the type of man who couldn't have ice without champagne, which I, I guess she has these like really interesting phrases in her books like that. Like ice, like be, like taking this basic thing of ice. It's like, like you would think like, oh, I can't have champagne without ice. But like we discussed in our one episode how important and oh, rich yeah. ice was no, in the absolutely. Sarah Estelle episode. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I, I just love that thing of like, I can't have this expensive thing for the time without having another expensive thing. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, she wasn't extremely interested in school, um, but to be frank, she really didn't need to be. Uh, Polly was a society girl who was just having a good time. Her and her family split their time between Manhattan and Connecticut. So she kind of got the best of both worlds. Um, and when, like when it came to like country and city living, she attended formal balls, Ivy League school dances, formal horse riding school. Um, in her autobiography, she describes living at 59th Street and 5th Avenue in a home. Like she lived basically where the Plaza Hotel is now. And her childhood nursery like overlooked Central Park. It's just like these magical places. That's where Macaulay Culkin was in the yeah. second Home Alone. <laughs> well, if he was in room 440, then he would have been in her childhood bedroom. May have been. Uh, she took dancing lessons at Mi- Mr. Doddsworth Dancing Class, uh, attended Miss Chapin School in New York, which apparently is very fancy and famous, um, and then boarded at Rosemary Hall, a prep school in Wallingford, Connecticut, um, where she did like to play a little bit of theater. Um, she was in As You Like It, um, playing the part of Rosalind to critical acclaim. Ooh. She says, um, <laughs> she says critical acclaim. <laughs> she was doing just all the things that a normal girl of her age and social class was supposed to be doing. And she was like into it. She's like, no, this is nice. I like it. <laughs> I can play the piano. Uh, she could, I she can could shop. definitely pay the piano. Um, so she was going to, when she got into like her teen years, like two or three debutante and other types of balls every night. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Leading up to her own, which is of course fabulous. Um, she said that she would sleep from 4 a.m. to 12 p.m. every day and then get up and do it all over again. Again, she's just having a good time. Um, but in 1908, her father passed away. So she ends up kind of moving to Connecticut with her mom and spending more time at their Connecticut compound. Um, and she was partying a little less than normal. Uh, and then in 1910, she graduated from high school at the age of 19. And in that same year, she found herself in quite a desperate situation. So she's getting ready for yet another ball. She's like back on the party scene and she is really fucking frustrated. She's like, I've been partying hard since I was 12 years old, and every night is the same damn thing, squeezing my big old titties into this tiny, well-boned corset. And at the end of the day, it makes them look like one big boob. And you know what? I have two great boobs. And this dress is, like, kind of sheer, and the corset is poking out of everywhere. She's like, this is not the look that I want. She said, there's got to be another way. 
So she called her maid Marie over and she said, somebody needs to call the Renaissance Festival <laughs> and let them know. <laughs> she said, bring me two of my pocket handkerchiefs and some pink ribbon and bring the needle and thread and some pens. And then she proceeded to fashion the handkerchiefs and ribbon into a simple bra. So she's feeling good. She's feeling confident. She's like, this is so fucking comfortable. Um, and when the girls see her at the party out on the dance floor, they're like, Pa, Lee, what the hell is going on with your boobs? We saw you in that same dress a few weeks ago and you look totally different. You look amazing. Like you always look good, but like you look fantastic right now. And she's like, it's just this little thing I whipped up today. And they all go to the bathroom and she's like showing off her new bra to these girls. And like, We've all done. I feel like everybody has that moment. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, why is there no lines under yeah. you? Is there like, anything? Let me lift up my shirt in front of everyone. I'm gonna show you. Um, <laughs> we've all been there. We've all been there. Um, this is why girls' restrooms are wonderful. <laughs> yes. She's like, look, it separates and kind of lifts and supports and it's really comfortable so her girlfriends start asking if she can make them one and she's like yeah no doubt no doubt and then the word kind of starts to spread and she starts receiving letters from random women asking if they can she can make them one and they're like here's a dollar so they're like sending her dollar bills just to make this little handkerchief bra and so she starts and selling them. she didn't them. even have a bra to put them in. No. <laughs> and so she starts selling them and she's like making a nice little profit. And she's like, you know what? I think I could make this into like an actual business. So in 1914, she goes down to the patent office and she successfully gets a patent for the backless brassiere. Polly likened her design to like corset covers, um, which covered the bosom when a woman wore a low corset. Um, her design had shoulder straps, which attached to the garment's upper and lower corners, and then kind of wrap around laces attached at the lower corners, which tied in the front. So this also enabled women to wear low-backed gowns, which is why it was called the backless brassiere, which they couldn't originally. And also, um, like, people... You might think that that sounds really complicated, but the amount of ties inside a Victorian petticoat, like the amount of things you were tying together, a couple more laces yeah. is not a big deal. No, it's not. Everything yeah. was tied. There weren't buttons and fastens the no. way there are now. Like things were literally ribbons tied together. Yeah. And that's what this was. This was like the, a very like basic design that like she has the patent like anybody could make it right um so polly wrote that her invention was well adapted to women of different size and was so efficient that it may be worn by persons engaged in violent exercise like tennis Ooh, her design <laughs> yeah her design was lightweight soft comfortable to wear and naturally separated the breasts unlike the corset which again was heavy stiff uncomfortable and had the effect of creating a single or mono bosom effect um and i do want to bring up this video that you like mentioned like episodes and episodes ago mm -hmm. about like not all corsets were like super uncomfortable <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like it is kind of important to note that because women were wearing them for like long periods of time but it was kind of in the victorian area where like i i believe was what she was saying that like they were kind of like putting like these harsher things in them and, and like not getting the shape right and like whatever so i do want to point that out well um, it's almost like you if you've ever seen like a victorian woman in a dress like in mm -hmm. like a real play it almost looks like there's a board up her front yeah and it's just like an angled flat board yeah and it's very weird it's not like the way you see it in movies where there's yeah. like beautiful lift of the breast it's just like a flat 
Yep. Like you're laying on a piece of plywood yeah. and they wrapped a dress <laughs> around it. And it's like, why? Exactly. So now here's a moment which we should mention that patents for brassiers had been being patented as early as the 1860s. And women around the world had been wearing bra-like contraptions, I mean, as early as the Roman Empire. Okay. Um, but in America at this time, corsets like one of the problems that women were having was that corsets were kind of getting lower and becoming more of a girdle and more women were looking for something kind of separately for the breasts. So companies like Bianjoli Brasiers were creating bra-like things, but they were more like camisoles, which and this is what made Polly's design different is that her separated the breasts where other ones were just like, here's like a tissue for your whole area. Right. <laughs> um, it was like more of a cupping motion. Yeah. Okay. So there was another woman with the same kind of idea back in 1893. Uh, Marie Tusek had gained a patent for the breast supporter, which actually looks even more like a modern day bra, but I couldn't really find much information on her and what she did with that patent. Um, so I don't know. Maybe she just didn't do anything with the patent, but it does exist. And I think they only last for seven years unless you renew them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Polly gets the patent, but she doesn't do anything quite yet because she's busy planning her wedding. Ah! <laughs> yes. In 1915, Polly marries a wealthy socialite named Richard Peabody. And this is a guy she'd known forever. Same Peabody we know. I am sure they are related. Okay. So he's a rich Peabody. He's a rich Peabody. And if you're in the Northeast, oh, that's yeah. a family. Uh-huh. Um, so this was kind of like, yeah, this is the person I'm supposed to marry. Just like everything else in her life. She's like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So why not? So for the first few years, she's enjoying married life, doing the shit that she's been doing. And then on February 4th, 1916, she had her first son, William. And a year later, they had a daughter, Pauline Wheatland. Mm. Um, or Polly, as they called her. <laughs> Why? Which is so funny. It's <laughs> so like, cute. you just... Mary, Polly, Mary. Mary, Polly, Mary. Don't, it's a pattern. Caress. Two um, makes a pattern. <laughs> uh, she was born August 12th, 1917. And Polly, adult Polly, quickly realized that when she had her babies, um, Dick was Richard, her husband. Everybody called him Dick. Um, had a very uh, different temperament <laughs> and very different ideas regarding children. Like he was like, "Why can't you just tell them to stop crying?" And she's like, "It's a baby." He's <laughs> like, "No, they shouldn't be allowed to do that." And she's like, "What?" <laughs> he must have listened to Away in the Manger he, too many times. I know. <laughs> and I mean, he just like he was like she was trying to put it in kind of a nice way. She was like, "Well, he just wasn't a very indulgent parent." Mm-hmm. But to the point that like when they would go on walks, like she'd be with the freaking bassinets and he would walk behind them because he didn't want to be around the children. Ew, gross. I know. Um and he also like many men had a penchant for drinking and he spent a lot of time in and out of sanitariums for his drinking problems. I mean, this is directly prior to prohibition, right? Yeah. And also this is after um, the or like so he had been in the military and uh, he had come back from like certain battles, like very shaken up and Mm. back from World War One. Yes. And so his kind of um, like coping mechanism was drinking, unfortunately. Okay, Um, And was also like and I know this is the 1920s, but like. Was Polly's curvy body type not accepted at that? Because I feel like we all think about, oh, my God, you had big boobs. Like, that's 
awesome like lucky yeah. you but i feel like in the 1920s you were supposed to have on these boxy yeah dresses and, that like you didn't see curves yeah and being flat chested was very in and actually in a weird way like because her design kind of let the breasts hang it gave you a flatter um look oh yeah because the corsets would be like pushing your boobs up and together okay and these were kind of like yeah it was like producing cleavage letting it fall down yeah and this was just kind of letting them fall down where they were natural and like it created actually a flatter um vision oh interesting yeah okay that was Um, what i was curious about because it was like i was wondering like what exactly she was going for yeah was it a i know it was comfort but what aesthetically yeah so aesthetically was yeah because like the corset just wasn't working with what new fashions were coming okay um so uh again he's in the military he comes back um his body's not quite right his mind isn't quite right he's drinking all the time it just turns into like not the best marriage so in 1920 Polly decides she's like you know what I don't have to just be here being a mom doing nothing. So she's like, I'm going to take my patent and I'm going to turn it into my business that I thought about years ago. So she creates the fashion form brassiere company. Now, of course, Dick did not approve of his wife conducting business. So Polly said, well, then I don't want you involved. And she files a legal certificate with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts on May 19th, 1920, declaring that she was a married woman conducting a business using separate funds from her husband's bank account it's basically the legal document version of the song independent woman by destiny's child <laughs> she was, all the women <laughs> independent um yeah Kelly, she's <laughs> are you down for this michelle <laughs> caress are you down for this um i don't think they can handle this uh that song oh it's so good um but yeah i so- showed my girls that charlie's <laughs> angels by the way recently and it i was. love that charlie's angels case and i watched it a couple months ago and oh, i love it your new christmas movie mm, no i'm still oh. pushing for a coyote ugly. okay we're trying <laughs> really trying um if you come over here i think we can make it happen <laughs> just bombard him <laughs> pretend we're pretend he's coming over for the ravens game and oh my it's god coyote ugly. <laughs> oh my god we have to watch it <laughs> strap him to the chair um so <laughs> don't stop the moonlight <laughs> so according to um her book she even describes it like this and wikipedia she <laughs> forms a two-woman sweatshop <laughs> so her and she kind of as all entrepreneurs yeah. do mm-hmm. so she kind of gets um marie the maiden on this as well in some capacity but the two of them hire these two like she was just like yeah they were just like young italian girls like 14 years old and she has them just churning out all these bras <laughs> listen but those girls knew how to make a bra they were probably helping out their friends at school and oh, shit oh yeah if, if girls could, if go, girls to could go to school who knows <laughs> um so oh, she funny. had a few department store clients and she was making kind of like a decent little living out of it for a bit but the real reason she kind of kept the factory around for so long was because it served as a very convenient place to have an affair in (gasps) caress caress um this is like the beginning of caress um she's still polly at the moment though my girl so on july 4th 1920 polly attended a picnic alone because dick was unfortunately being put away for his alcoholism yet again a picnic or a barbecue picnic um so she is at this event and she meets a man named harry crosby 
Polly was 28, married with two small children, and Harry was 22 of slight build with an unusual blonde hairstyle, a pale complexion, a weak constitution, and a consuming gaze and enormous charisma. Is he? Is I, she a cougar? Is yes, she a cougar? Yes. Oh. And multiple times. I don't know where this description came, came from, but I fucking love it. I think this is might be our first real cougar. I think so, too. Yeah. I mean, we've done women that have had, like, relationships with younger men this sounds like i'm married my husband's trash i have kids and you and your blonde hair is cute oh yeah and the whole way their affair started is insane so they're at this picnic and harry's mom (laughs) comes to polly and she goes hey harry and his friends want to go to the amusement park at nantucket beach um can you please go chaperone them (laughs) Harry's mom has got it going on. I just don't understand why (laughs) Harry, who's 22 and all of his friends need a chaperone. Um, But I mean, why wouldn't she be a perfectly appropriate chaperone? She's an older married socialite. Of course, nothing scandalous would happen. That's that's Harry's mom's fault. It is. I mean, at some point, listen. Um, But of course, Harry became absolutely transfixed by Polly and her ample bosom. And he (laughs) confessed his love for her. That very night in the tunnel of love. With a motorboat. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, now, Polly. Double on time. <laughs> now, Polly was definitely interested, but the fact of the matter was, this would be completely devastating to her social life. So she resisted for a bit, but as she said, Harry was utterly ruthless. To know Harry was a devastating experience. And on July 20th, 1920, they met in secret and slept together for the first, but definitely, definitely not last time. Well, this is also a very interesting thing because I think if I have my story straight, which I don't know if I do, men hit their sexual peak in their early 20s and women hit it in their 40s, which is why the the cougar phenomenon exists of like the we both just want this crazy passionate sex. Yep. And she's certainly not getting it home, like, right now, because, Mm -hmm. like, things aren't good with her husband. Um, So, two days later, she accompanied him on a trip to New York, and they stayed at the Belmont Hotel. And she said of this experience, for the first time in my life, I knew myself to be a person. So, like, I think it was the first time she was like, oh, I'm not a wife or a daughter or a mother. She's like, I'm a whole separate person who can make crazy decisions like this. I feel like he just found her clitoris. Oh, probably. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, So they continued their affair in secret, but word spreads fast in communities like Boston. And soon she was not only considered a huge tramp, but also a pervert. (gasps) I mean... People I mean, were I get like, it. I, people were like, how dare you take advantage of a young, proper man like that when you're supposed to be his chaperone? I mean, fair. It, it is fair, fair. But he's 22 and she's 28. Like, if I mean, he could have gone and come back from a war at that point. Like, he's an adult. Right. He is an adult, you know, like, yeah, I, and other I mean, is she breaking totally her vows of marriage? Yes. But yes. he's also been in prison too much for drinking. So yeah. like, at some point. 
I know. Okay, um, whatever. But yeah, but people are thinking she's like a fucking pervert right now. Okay, yeah. This um, is not like the woman in Maryland a couple years ago who was like no. seducing teenage like boys. teenage boys. This is very different. And I understand teenager, like 22 is not super old, but like also you, you're a full grown person. Yeah, no, absolutely. Your frontal lobe is rearing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wasn't quite ready to give up her family yet for this guy. So they kept it quiet and just mm. had their little rendezvous in the factory. <laughs> um, but come that fall, uh, Dick was back from the sanatorium and he had no idea that the whole town was talking about his wife, <gasps> which is maybe oh. why he like didn't think it was weird that Harry is sending crates of flowers to their house and crates, crates. Ugh, and I'm lucky to get half a vase. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and just like toys and presents for her and the kids. And they're going to like the shore every other weekend together. <laughs> <laughs> but Dick had other things on his mind. He had, Tried to go back to Harvard to get a degree, but that didn't work. And then he tried to join the fire department, but then he got fired and he went back to drinking again. And so while she's, she's dealing with all of like her husband's business and this affair, Harry is getting more and more distressed because he wants her to leave her husband and run away with him. And he just doesn't understand why she hasn't done it yet. Okay, fair. So he ends up writing her this letter and he's like, look, if you don't divorce him and marry me, I'm going to kill you and then myself. And so then we can go right to heaven together and we can die in each other's arms. Okay. Maybe and, his frontal lobe isn't ready. And he, <laughs> and he ends the letter with, and I'll take the blame so you don't have to worry, dear. What a lunatic. Um, but unfortunately, this worked. I feel like I've dated someone like that before. I know. Polly went to Dick and she told him what was up. And she was like, look, this isn't working out. I've met this other guy. And she asked for a divorce. And he said, OK, like, I understand, like, why you don't want to be with me. And he grants her the divorce. What a grown up. I know. Thank you, Dick. I mean, he just really was not doing well and he just didn't resist it. He was like, I don't want I don't I think he had a lot of self-hatred and like he just I think he was thinking like, yeah, you shouldn't be around me. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm. I feel I actually feel really bad for him. Um, And in 1922, they officially divorce. Dick did eventually recover from his alcoholism. And he then dedicated his life to helping others fight their alcoholism. He often told people, when you need a drink, you need a friend. Come to me. We will talk it out anytime, day or night. And then in 1933, he wrote a book called The Common Sense of Drinking, which became a foundation. Alcohol Anonymous. For Alcoholics oh Anonymous. I know. For Alcoholics Anonymous. I can Anonymous. tell by that one quote, if you need a friend, come to me. That's a sponsor. Yeah. He was being <sighs> a sponsor before it even existed. Dick. I Listen, mean, we don't cheers a lot of men on this podcast. We don't cheers a lot, but cheers to Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you were you were literally a dick. Yeah, I mean, you <laughs> fixed it. And uh, the and the whole thing was like people really connected with it because after years of like trying to fight it and going to these like medical facilities, he was like, you know what? I we're trying to cure alcoholism. He goes, but it's there's not really a way to like cure it like it is something that you are going to have to deal with like if you are like a really struggling with this because you're gonna have to deal with it for the rest of your life so his whole thing was like if you are struggling like you need help like yeah you like you know and it's just a very interesting thing so i just wanted to end on a really positive note for dick because if you're struggling with alcoholism there is help out there yeah and i i mean somebody of that like resolve before there was a large group of people like if you need help even if like if you think 
you might need help, yeah. then that's a step. Oh, yeah. That's like a step. I know there are moments when I've been like, I don't know if this is an addiction. And yeah. that's when it's time to talk to somebody. Yeah. Um. So the number for like an alcoholic hotline is 888-656-3051. So I know we drink and Katie and I are not afflicted with addiction but there are people who are and please oh yeah seek help if that is the thing and this man is one of the people who put that in motion he did and i i just i love that thing he said is like if you need a drink you need a friend so like come talk to me because there's always someone out there who is willing to just sit and talk and help you through it so mm. um it's yeah. beautiful that gave me chills i know i know so cheers to dick seriously like, oh i gosh. rarely get chills from men on this podcast <laughs> yeah, i know i know thank you um okay so they split up um but polly's mother tells her she goes look if you want to stay in this blue blood society you cannot openly get together with harry for at least like six months Ugh. so she waits the time um, but it still doesn't really make everything better. Um, her friends abandon her and they call her an adulteress. And there was also like some weird meeting between Harry and Dick's fathers, basically trying to figure out what to do about their sons and this Polly woman. But ultimately nothing was going to stop Polly and Harry. And on September 9th, 1922, they were married. And on September 11th, 1922, just two days after they boarded a ship for Paris with the kids. So they did bring her kids along uh, to start their new life. And, uh, they were going to Paris because Harry was given a job at a Paris bank by his uncle and godfather, J.P. Morgan, who, fun fact, was also godfather to Dick Peabody. They had the same godfather. So weird. I feel like Morgan is like Morgan and Stan. Like, I feel like Morgan's a big bank name. I think it is. There, I can't remember if it's Morgan and Stanley or Morgan Chase. It might be. I there's think a J.P. Morgan Chase or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. There's a huge bank name. With yeah, there's Morgans. a huge one. So he's obviously super famous and mm-hmm. well off. Um, Polly knew that she couldn't really take her business with her. And she really just didn't really care about it. I mean, it was more about having a secret spot than making bras by mm-hmm. this point. So she ends up selling the bra company to Warner Brothers Corset Company <laughs> for $1,500, which I think is around like 25 grand now. That's exactly what Casey said I was telling this and, he, and I was like, you mean Michigan J frog? And Casey goes, who is that? I was like, I knew who Casey, you that's the, the frog, frog, the frog that does that. That's his name. And he goes, he had a name. I was like, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm very glad we had the same joke, but I uh, didn't know who he was. Yes. Um, so Warner brothers, Gorsuch company would go on to make $15 million off of her patent. <laughs> okay. But also like, Listen, a company is a company. That's the thing. I feel bad when people are like, I sold it and then they made all this money. It's like, yeah, but they had a million person team working on it. You're one person. Yeah. And that's like Polly didn't care. Like, yeah, she was like, good for them. Just like I couldn't have made fifteen million dollars off. I'm glad somebody did. Now I can buy that bra. Yeah, there we go. Constructed better and in all the sizes. (laughs) Exactly. Um. So when they get to Paris, everything's good. They're excited. They're in love. 
But then Polly quickly finds out that Harry, this man that she just risked her entire life for, was cheating on her. Fuck. I know. And she is extremely upset. With who? Is she young? It's this, this like, friend of hers that, like, she kind of introduced him to, um, who, by the sounds of her name, is in the DAR with Emily Gilmore. Um, Constance <laughs> Tipsy Cro- McCoy? <laughs> Constance Crowninshield Coolidge. <laughs> Bunny Mickerjidge? Oh, my <laughs> Now, Constance was an interesting lady. Coolidge, that's the last name of a president. It is. I don't know if they're related, though. Calvin. She may have married in. Who knows? Um, Her uncle, Frank, was the editor of Vanity Fair, so she had a lot of clout in Paris at the time. And she just liked to hang out and fuck and gamble, and she just, like, didn't care what anyone thought of her. She was initially... So Polly is initially, like, really upset and distressed. Yeah. But then she's kind of seeing how Constance lives her life. And then she's like well, what if I lived my life like that? And then the idea of like, what if I started having affairs and like living this like French bohemian lifestyle? So wait, she looks at her husband's mistress (laughs) and is like, I'm going to model my life after her? Yeah. Okay. 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 So, I mean, I don't don't know if it's actually directly that A to B or whatever, but like that's kind of what I gathered because... It's the Parisian way. It's the Parisian way. They're in this new city. Um, So, (laughs) they enter into, um, this time, like a very consensual open marriage. And uh, according to Caress, well, (laughs) she's about to become Caress, um, (laughs) she said... Well, the way I thought of it, he could have princesses as long as I was still queen. Uh, I would not see it that way at all. Um, (laughs) There's 0% chance I would like. No, Mm. no. Um, It's okay for other people. I totally get that. Like other, I just, I know I couldn't do it. Mm -mm. Um, I'm way too jealous. I'm a deity and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) This is my, is my go-to. Uh, and thus began her and Harry's life of saying yes and never no to everything. Like, Caress said that yes was Henry's favorite word, and it became hers as well. So Harry says to her, well, now that we're kind of starting this new life again. I feel like this is Samantha and Smith. It's outrageous. Okay. Um, he said, I think that you should change your name. He goes, something kind of fun and spicy, but I really wanted to start with a C and kind of have an R in it so that we can kind of form a cross with my name. Banana hammock. Um, how about clitoris? And she says, no, I know I've said clitoris twice in a podcast. I know I just said yes to everything. Um, but I'm going to say no to that. Why? I feel like the men back then didn't know what that meant. Probably not. Mm. And he goes, no, 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 it'll be cool. We'll spell it with a Y (laughs) instead of an I. And she's like, no deal. So (laughs) together they come to the conclusion that she will now go by the name of caress Crosby and that they will name their dog clitoris. Um, their dog's they are name just ob- yes. was clitoris. Yes. I- <laughs> uh, her family never called her by her new name, saying that calling herself Caress was akin to pornography. It's like, you don't even know how close it came to pornography, my friends. Um, <laughs> then Harry suddenly quit his pre- prestigious banking job, which was handed to him, remind you. And he and Caress continued in their wild ways, spending their money with no regard. They are spending it on travel, drinks, drugs, and of course, a few racehorses, which eventually led Harry to send a drunk and distressed telegram to his mother saying, please sell $10,000 worth of stock. Stop. We have dedicated... <laughs> 
We have decided to lead a, a mad and extravagant life. <laughs> we have decided to lead a mad and extravagant life. I feel like drunk texting is a thing, but you have to make a decision. I mean, a drunk telegram <laughs> is insane. Uh, I, I love this and couple. I just, they're ridiculous. And this is the thing. I like I kind of hate him when he gets like this because the thing is he didn't really care about money because he had a trust fund. So like the money was always there for him. And then also Caress notes. She goes, well, we also didn't really care about running out of money because we'd made a joint suicide pact. Um, we agreed that on October 31st, 1942. So it was a while away. They were going to jump out of an airplane together and this was to be followed by cremation. And then they were going to have their ashes scattered in another airplane. And do you want to know why the date is so specific? Because that is the first time in like a hundred years. It's like the closest that the earth would be to the sun. And Harry is obsessed with the sun. Listen, I, <laughs> I understand being weird about astrology, but a suicide pact is it's, not the way to go about no, it. No, it is not. Especially when like you got into this relationship because he was like, I'm going to kill myself unless you leave your husband. This is not... This is not healthy at the moment. It's not healthy. So mm, also killing yourself on Halloween is so ironic. I know. Just not good. Um, okay. So Harry and Caress just completely embrace the French bohemian lifestyle. As I said, they start having these wild sex parties and smoking mm-hmm. a ton of opium. And of course, hosting famous French artists or, or like famous artists. Some of them were French. Some of them were not. Um, Dolly. Yes. Salvador Dolly. I knew it. He keeps and coming up. Pablo Picasso. Everybody was there. Um, and every, the clocks are dripping from the walls. They really are. And the thing was, it was really interesting because they had this kind of mill house. They bought this house and they called it the mill. Um, and everyone who came in would sign their name on the wall and do you want to know whose signature was on this wall? You're never going to guess. So I'm just going to tell okay, you. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay, it's, it's a it, woman. It's a, is it a French woman? I don't know. I don't know anything about her. All I know is one very famous thing. Okay, go ahead, tell me. Eva Braun. <laughs> <laughs> what? What was Eva Braun French? I never. I don't think so. I don't no. think so either. Uh-uh. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, she was like, I would show you, but the Nazis came in and destroyed like the, everything, everything, the world, um, all of Europe. So democracy, they host these very theatrical parties um, because they also liked to host like very specifically like students from the local art school. Um, and at one of these parties, Henry was, this is just like a very particular one that stood out to me in her book um, because Henry was walking around with a red loincloth. Um, and a big bag of Mowgli, it gets worse, a big bag of snakes in his hand and a necklace made of dead birds. And so he's he's a quarter Mowgli. uh, Just imagine Mowgli. He's full Mowgli in dress, just a red loincloth. But then he's got the bag of snakes, like a bag of snakes. Yes. Just a bag of snakes. And then he's wearing a necklace with four dead birds on it. Does it say what I, kind of bird? I, I'm imagining pigeons because they're plentiful in Paris, um, but I really don't know. You mean rock doves. Um, <laughs> Look and, it up. That's their real technical name. But this was just the opener because then Caress arrived to the party. Um, she is topless. <gasps> she is wearing a turquoise wig 
and she is riding an elephant. She's Katy Perry. She's Katy Perry. They got an elephant into this tiny Parisian home, but they did. She's literally blue I, wig, yes. topless on an elephant. She's Katy. You're she, right. She's Katy Perry. Oh my I don't. It's unreal. Um, again, there's lots of opium involved. Um, they would also invite um, other couples to bed and they would paint each other's fingernails gold before taking a big bath and switching partners. Caress said in her autobiography, oh, yeah, our bed slept seven. <laughs> My. Caress said that their open marriage worked well for them. Because the only thing that they never lost interest in was each other. So they got bored of restaurants, places, people, like, really quickly. But they always maintained a very, like, like extreme interest in each other. Um, and, of course, they are right. Oh, that's bullshit. Because if you like each other, you like each other at a restaurant. No, like... <laughs> no, they would just get bored with a restaurant. Like they'd be like at this place and they'd be like, oh, this scene is dead. Yeah. But if you like each other enough, you can have mm, fun that's anywhere. True. That's anywhere. True. Doesn't matter, friends. <laughs> Find someone you like. <laughs> so, of course, they're also just writing oodles and oodles of love poetry. <laughs> and they go, oh, my gosh. Our poetry is too good to keep to ourselves. <laughs> so they open up Black Sun Press to publish their own love poetry. Um, so Caress's book is a book called Crosses of Gold. And then Harry's is called Sonnets for Caress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Songs of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, then they start expanding and they eventually do start publishing works. Um, one of their famous clients was James Joyce, which is a really big <laughs> fucking deal. And they just kind of accidentally start making money with this venture. Um, another thing they like to spend their money on was travel. Um, they spent a lot of time in like Egypt and North Africa and just going all over like she describes it in the book but some of it's just like okay it's just another party it's all the fucking same you know they're traveling but there is one unfortunate story that I have to mention where (gasps) Harry sexually assaulted a 13 year old dancer named Zora and a 14 year old girl who he simply called nubile um, and a young boy of an unspecified age. Wait, where was he? Where in this what is when country? he is in, uh, I think, between like Egypt and northern Africa. OK, this is why sex parties can be really like, OK, I understand open minded people. I yeah. understand open minded situations, but you cannot just like expect that everybody at your party is there for the same reason. Yeah, because it seemed to me that like these were young dancers who were like hired for the event. And then, like, because a lot of the things were just like, yeah, he had sex with these people. But I'm like, they are too young to just say, like, you had sex with them. Well, at some point, you feel bad saying no if you were hired for a thing that you got paid for. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, I have to do this. No, you don't. No. And, like, that is just unacceptable to me to be like, yeah, they had sex. It's like, no, I don't care, like, how consensual you think it was. These people, these kids are 13 and 14. Right. Like he's in his 20s. Like, no, that's not okay. Like, no. 
I hate that. Yeah. And I hate I it. And we it's... have to bring it up, though, because, like, they're having a good time, whatever. But, like, that's not okay. I don't care that it was the fucking 20s, you yeah. know? And it's also, like, it's and... okay to be polyamorous. It's yeah. okay to be polygamous if everybody's on board. Mm-hmm. You can't just go to a place where you're not 100% sure that people aren't on board. And if you don't make sure, then you are at fault. Yeah, absolutely. And there really isn't any more information on that. It's just, like, a little quick blip on Wikipedia. Because, of course, like she doesn't mention it in her book. So I just wanted to talk about it because I think that, you know, people like that need to be held accountable. Um, Okay, but the closer we get to the end of the 20s, the more wild and outlandish um, their life is getting. Um, So. But all of this, again, like this sounds so Lord Byron to me, it's very Lord Byron. Um, And then. They're also like the fairs are getting a little more dicey, like the one I just described. Um, and they're having more and more fights about the affairs. So it's not quite the happy, open marriage that it was in the beginning. So now it's kind of like you're always supposed to like choose me overall. And he's like not doing that anymore. Um, in 1928, it's like Underwood's first couple seasons versus end. Yeah. Got it. Um, and then in 1928, Harry meets 20-year-old Josephine. Um, and Baker? like he does. <laughs> I thought that for a second. But Same no. time period, but no. <laughs> um, and he falls head over heels in love with this girl. Um, he calls her uh, the youngest princess of the sun and the fire princess. Um, their affair goes on um, even after she had been married. Um, she tries to break it off a few times. Um, and... Caress says she's like this is the only of his like princesses that I started to worry about you know like she was like he had some affairs I didn't really approve of as much but like this was like really worrisome because she lives in the U.S. Mm. so he's like traveling back to the U.S. like just to have like affairs with her and stuff Um, so all this is going on and then in 1929 Harry and Caress go to New York for the annual Harvard Yale football game uh i know how traditional i know um they're there they're visiting with harry's family um and of course harry uses this as an excuse to reunite with josephine who had come down from boston that's where she was living um she originally came down to kind of break things off again but then they got back together and she writes him this huge poem like declaring her love for him Um, girl walk away i know and the last line of this poem is death is our marriage oh my god i know calm down so she's now on the very same like wavelength of him So i mean they're meant to be maybe 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 so according to caress's autobiography on december 9th she and harry were in their hotel room looking out the window and he suggested that they meet the sun death together. And no. Caress was like, no, I have way too much to live for. And so do you. This is not the right time. October 31st this is, in 1942. is God, Are you kidding me? November We have another nine. decade at least. Stop um, it. So Harry reluctantly agreed. And he was like, like you're right. It's, it's not quite time. And they both went off. Like she had appointments to get to. So did he. But later in that evening, um, Caress and Harry's mother met up for dinner and they were kind of surprised that Harry wasn't there. They're like, well, that's weird. He did not kill himself. And so they go to dinner without him. And Caress said she didn't eat the whole time because she was like, I know that something terrible happened. Like he was being super weird this morning, you know, and she's like, I know that something bad happened. So it's like hours and they can't reach him. Nobody can find him. And she was like, 
you know what? I think I might know where he is. So she calls her friend Stanley Mortimer, who had a studio where Harry would go off and have affairs sometimes. And it wasn't until 10 p.m. that evening when Stanley finally broke into his own studio and Harry was indeed in that studio with a self-inflicted bullet wound to his temple, his body entwined with Josephine, who had a matching bullet wound. Together? Together. It, I, it's cultish. It, yeah. His last diary entry was, one is not in love unless one desires to die with one's beloved. No. There mm-hmm. is only one happiness. It is to love and to be loved. News spread quickly of the scandal, um, but the real scandal, according to the papers, was that he had red nail polish on his hands and feet and tattoos on the soles of his feet, one of the cross and another of a pagan sun symbol. Another, like, very cultish. Like, he Is was, that true? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the Eastern Seaboard was completely shocked, and Caress was devastated. Um, in his will, Harry had left Caress around $2.4 million in today's money, but his family was like, I mean, that's not really his money to give. <laughs> um, but they did work out a deal with Caress where she would receive about $23,000 a year from the family trust. Okay. Um, and I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> um, after this, she changed her name kind of again, no longer feeling truly like Harry's Caress. Um, she now went by Mary Caress Crosby, but we'll stick with Caress cause I'm sick of changing her name. Yeah. Um, And all this, she decided, like, after all this, she was like, all right, I need to focus on something. So she's like, I'm going to expand the Black Sun Press. She began printing paperback versions of well-known works by her pal, Ernest Hemingway, because she was like, I think paperback books are like the wave of the future. She's like, it's a cheap way to get more people like classic literature. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Seriously. Um, But like, People just like weren't really going for it. Um, so she was trying to get paperbacks off the ground. And then she was also publishing new works by William Faulkner, Dorothy Parker. Um, but her specialty was expat writers who were living in Paris of like this quote unquote lost generation. Um, and in fact, some people call her the literary godmother to the lost gen- generation of expatriates living in Paris. Like, that was her specialty. Um, some publications did very well, but many retailers just wouldn't listen to her when it came to the issue of paperbacks. And that's kind of where she was investing most of her money. So they just didn't think that people wanted them around. So in 1933, she kind of left the publishing game, um, even though the Black Sun Press did continue small projects until the 70s. Um, and she started to focus more on writing because an interesting opportunity came up. <laughs> so... One of her good friends was an author by the name of Henry Miller. Do you know the name? He wrote Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn. He's written just like a ton of, ton of books. Actually, okay. the guy I bought my house from is obsessed with him. Um, <laughs> well, yes, you would know you have all, all his books. of his books. Um, so she and Henry Miller had this long friendship. And around 1933, he came to her absolutely distressed. Um, because so from what I understand, his book, The Tropic of Cancer, had been banned in the U.S. for being too pornographic. Oh, you know how we are. I with know. Our censorship. I know. Um, so he was like, I can't sell my book. So I, I'm in need of some money. So he got a new job um, writing personal pornography for an oil tycoon in Oklahoma. So he's writing fanfic for. 
for a guy because the guy was like that book is sexy as hell but can you write me stuff like more specific like, like i want you, this like, person and this person yeah yeah he's, he's writing like, fanfic write me some sexy stories um but this guy he was reading it way too quickly and demanding too much of it and he was like look henry i need you to be more specific in the stories <laughs> And really, Henry Miller did not want to be doing this. He needed some help, so he called on the wildest girl he knew, Caress. And Caress was like, I'll absolutely help you out. And she starts ghostwriting erotica for Henry Miller to sell to the oil baron in Oklahoma. Stop it. (laughs) She's, I mean, she's created the bra. She's working on paperback books, which is like my godsend when I'm trying to buy something. And now she is ghostwriting erotica for a weird American in Texas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is she might be my hero. I know. I know. Um, and the oil guy loved it. When Caress started writing the, the, his pornography, he was like, this is what I've been wanting this whole time. Less flowery poetry, just raw sex. Um, so she's doing that for a while. Well, I mean, I bet, though, this guy, whoever he's married to or with, ends up benefiting. Probably. Because he's reading a woman's words of, like, what sex yeah. feels like and should feel like. Hopefully. Hopefully. I, I'm crossing my fingers. I know. Um, so she's doing that. And then in 1934, her love life was kind of in the news yet again. Not really the news, but the gossip chain. <laughs> um, when she started a relationship with a black boxer and Broadway actor named Canada Lee. Okay. They dated for a few years, kind of off and off, but it was a really difficult relationship to maintain since it was illegal at the time mm-hmm. for them to be together. But Mary didn't care. And she even cut off contact with Harry's brother, who was just like poking his nose in this situation. He was kind of like, if my parents are going to be paying you out of our trust fund, then you can't be dating a black guy. And she goes, I don't give a fuck what you think. And she didn't talk to him for 10 years. Damn. I know. Um, but then in 1937, she married again to a young out of work actor, 18 years, her junior. His name was Selbert Saffold Young. Um, everybody just called him Bert, um, who unfortunately also ended up being an alcoholic. Um, so gotten, she's addicted she's gotten to alcoholic from Dick. Um, he was always asking Crest for money. He crashed her car. He ran up the telephone bill. He used all of her credit at the local the liquor telephone store. bill. <laughs> Obviously, he was quite a drain on her. So they divorced in 1939. But Caress was never lonely. She had lots of friends always coming in and out of her house. Salvador Dali and his wife stayed with her in New York for a while. She was back and forth between Paris and New York. And then she moved to D.C. to open up D.C.'s only modern art gallery, the Caress Crosby Modern Art Gallery in DuPont Circle. Welcome to our home. Welcome. Um, Then in 1950... She bought um, a 15th century castle in Italy. Of course she did. Why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't she? Buy a castle in Italy. Um, She outfitted it with electricity. She modernized it, but tried to keep most of it the same. And she turned it into a thriving artist colony. Um, There is even a documentary made about her and the castle in the 60s. Um, And I love the title of this. It's kind of what I named the cocktail after it. It's called Always Yes Caress. Because that's what she did. She always said yes to everything. Mm. And she she was privileged enough to be able to say yes to things. But, like, 
she lived a really interesting life because of it. And yeah. So incredible. Incredible. Um, she also, this is when she wrote her autobiography called the passionate years. Um, (laughs) but near the end of the sixties, she was not in the best health. She was suffering from heart disease. And after an experimental surgery at the Mayo clinic, Mary caress, clitoris crosby (laughs) jacob phelps (laughs) whatever her name is passed away from pneumonia on january 24th 1970 at the age of 78 in rome Mm. she is typically remembered for just one of the many things she did throughout her life um and when she was asked when she was older i think maybe like around the time this documentary was made someone was like chris like you invented the bra she goes huh yeah i did she goes eh, it's no steamboat <laughs> i mean it isn't but it isn't fair, fair. but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair. um so i just hope that this story gives a fuller picture to her wild life and i just like mary jacob phelps caress clitoris crosby <laughs> i hope that you she's always like say Aldous yes. Dumbledore. She really is. She's outrageous. Uh, um, yeah, always say yes. And yeah, and that's the story, isn't? <laughs> wow. I mean, <laughs> are you blown away? I'm blown away, and I can't believe we paired her with Mother Teresa. I can't believe it either, because that was a complete accident. I was just like, oh, this person's cool. Like, you know, I'm, I was like, I'm yeah. sure it'll be like a nice, easy, quick story. I've never heard of her. So like, she couldn't have been too crazy. That's what I thought about Mother Teresa, too. And look Ooh, where we are. But I mean, what we actually need to do is talk about these two women in conversation with each other. We need to do it in a segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Um, Go ahead and take a sip. I'll wait. I'm going to take a sip. <laughs> you're, I haven't drinking like any of my I cocktail. know. You're dying. I mean, you've been talking up a storm. I just, okay. I can't, I mean, immediately when you called your cocktail always yes and my cocktail was love always, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I it. I know. I Again, it's like I can't tell you how little we planned this and I can't believe <laughs> and it's funny because I changed the name of mine too not like during this but like at home so like I was like you know I feel like I should call it always yes so I can't believe that it that even that like paired and I was kind of thinking about it like you know love always you know always yes always yes love always you can read it any way and it is such a beautiful statement and I just I was thinking a lot about love in our two stories um, because I think that that was their kind of core values. You mm-hmm. know, I think that caress, I think that she truly loved life. I think she loved it to a point of complete irresponsible excess. Right. And the thing is though, like she loved her life. I think that mother Teresa, I think that she loved other people so much that like she could like she couldn't live her she couldn't live her own life you know like her love was completely you know she was trying to like spread love in the way she knew how which was just like being there and i think caress was just like i'm just loving my life (laughs) well it's funny too because caress in a way she's like wearing a corset and she says 
this isn't comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make a solution so that it's comfortable for me. And then if it benefits other people, okay. Whereas Mother Teresa is like, I am purposely going to make my life uncomfortable in order to benefit other people. Yeah. So it's like they ended up with the actual same results (laughs) of like other people being comforted and benefited from the things that they did. But it was just like they were living not only during the same exact time period, I but literally in opposite spectrums of belief. Yeah. And I think it's really crazy that, I mean, Caress is 10 years older than Mother Teresa. And she would have known who she was. Oh, absolutely. But also I wrote down that like Mother Teresa, yes, would have hated what how Caress was living, but she also would not have cared. No, I don't think so. Mother Teresa is not I, as much as she does have criticism for the there are some shitty opinions she did have. She didn't she wasn't massively judgy. In fact, one of her famous quotes is if you spend all your time judging, then you don't have time to love. Yeah. So like she isn't out there to be like, oh, my God, you're out having sex with everyone. I hate you. She's like, OK, you're having sex. So like you know whatever yeah (laughs) it was just like i'm worried about these poor people i don't care about you bouncing around between new york and france and like making bras like whatever do it yeah well and i think that that's an interesting point to make because they were kind of so self-focused but in again like the complete opposite ways for like Caress couldn't have been bothered with what people thought of her. Mm. She was worried about that when she was younger and when she was going through her first divorce. And then she was like, why the hell am I caring about all of this? I kind of feel like her transition to Paris and uh, like you're talking about that train ride that Teresa was taking to Darjeeling where she kind of had this epiphany of Mm. like, no, like this is my calling. And I think they both kind of had these just very starkly opposite callings of like, Caress was like, I'm going to live my life and for myself. And Teresa was like, I'm going to live my life for other people. And I think that we need people both. We oops, hit the heater. Um, we need both of those types of people in the world. I mean, you can't live without both of those types yeah. of people. And, you know, <laughs> I think it's sad that when we look at stories like this, we're like, well, good always wins, yeah. you know, like. Mother Teresa won a Nobel Prize. Everybody knows her name, this, that, and the other. Like, I think it's a shame that we don't know the name of the woman who, quote unquote, invented the bra. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that it's sad that because a woman is more sexually open, they don't get notoriety. No, absolutely. And that's sad because Mother Teresa, like, part of the reason she has gained no notoriety is because the patriarchy is comfortable with her. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like when you do look at Caress's life, it just opens up a whole lot of opportunity for judgment and people feel right judging her. Oh yeah. But like, like you're saying, like it's dicey to cover mother Teresa because when people do judge her, other people are like up in arms. Mm -hmm. Like that's why we are trying to take that middle road, you know, because it's either like you absolutely hate her or you think she was a saint and deserved to be canonized. And it's like, you're not respecting the nuance in both of these women that like both of them fucked up in various ways, but they were also both like 
good people in other ways, you know, and I don't think that, you know, Mother Teresa should not be criticized just because, you know, she's this celibate old nun. <laughs> like, Just like I think we should criticize, you know, Caress because like, I don't know how involved she was in like her husband, you know, assaulting those 13, 14 year olds. You know, right. they, I don't know, but and like, I don't know how much like she, and I know you can't technically prevent someone from taking their own life, but it sounds like she was pretty aware. Yeah. She was like, very aware what was going on. And it's, you know, both of these women are, so, it's so, it was funny is it's easier to accuse mother Teresa of wrongdoing mm. because of her blemish free life. It's easier to see the spots. Yeah. Whereas with Caress, it's like, okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. You were living your life. We're super proud of you. Like, good job yeah. with the bra. And then maybe paperback books. Like, <laughs> yes. And then you know what? And you get to Mother Teresa and you're like, oh, well. You think you're so good. Right. You think you're so good and you won't even let me have birth control. Like, right. And then it's like you get so up in arms over these small things and really like you like you you use the word nuance and you're right these are nuanced women just like everyone that we do there is good there is bad there's middle path and I mean it's, if I can toot my own horn <laughs> it's part of the reason I love this podcast because I feel like or at least I hope we don't come at these ladies with angles we just want to tell the whole story yeah good bad ugly perfect blemished yeah. Because that's what people are. Why yeah, not? They are. And like, I love that it worked out that we compared these two women. Yeah. Because it tells a really interesting story of how we view women in the world. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I just, it was really interesting. So. <laughs> love it. I love it too. All right, Allie. You ready to toast? I'm ready to toast. <sighs> My. Allie, who would you like to toast? I this evening oh, this evening um this santa fire trick filled evening <laughs> i i want to toast people who are trying yeah i think it's so easy to just look at somebody who's doing something good and be like but you didn't do this yeah and it's like okay but like i actually did do this yeah. um so not every person is a building block in the pyramid of society and it's yeah. like every you can't be a pyramid by yourself so if you're trying and you're being criticized for not doing enough um try anyway try so. anyway cheers cheers who would you like to toast i mean i'm going to obviously toast caress and her love of the word yes <laughs> um i just want to toast women who say yes because it's hard to do it's very scary um and I don't say yes to a lot of things and actually kind of hit me too because I'm uh I was watching The Office recently <laughs> and it was that scene where it's like you know it's like the women's empowerment day or whatever and Jen is uh Jen, uh Jan is talking to um Pam and she is like you should do this internship it's for artists da 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 and Pam is like oh I don't know it's you know i in planning a wedding I have stuff to do and Jan just like as flawed as Jan is on that fucking show she's nuts she like takes Pam and she goes there are a million reasons not to do things but like you you have to do them anyways you know what I'm saying because yeah. like you can talk yourself out of anything and 
I just think that um, it's important to say yes, even when it's scary. Wake up, so, get there, and do cheers. it. All right, Allie, what is going to be your first pop plug of season eight? I really like the BBC show, The End of the Effing World. <laughs> it's so cute. It's only two seasons. I love BBC. Oh, they're great. I, I just love that everything is two seasons. It's perfect. Episodes are only 20 minutes. I don't have to get too invested. It's absolutely insane. I I just like it. All it right. Just, it, isn't, it isn't hard to like. Well, it's hard to like. Um, I need to pick it back up. It isn't hard to love. It's hard okay. to like. Um, it's just weird and crazy and out there. And you don't. I feel like you don't have to invest a lot of time in BBC, which is yeah. why I like it. Yep. All right. Excellent. <laughs> um, I'm also going to promote a show this week. Um, it's the show Baskets. So it originally premiered on FX, um, but now it's on Hulu. Um, it is a show created by Zach Galifianakis, whatever you say his name. Um, and he plays a he plays twins <laughs> and a rodeo clown. And his mother is played by Louis. I'm uh, not Louis C.K. He, uh, not him. Louis Anderson. <laughs> uh-huh. Two different people. Two different people. Um, Louis Anderson plays his mother, Christine Baskets, and she is the most wonderful character because she feels so much like a real mom, even though it is Louis Anderson, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she fucking loves Costco. And she loves her kids. And I, it is just, it's a really funny show, but then it gets so emotional. Like I am like crying at this show about a fucking rodeo clown. I love that. It's so brilliantly written. Also, one of the writers and producers on that show is Karen Kilgara from My Favorite Murder. So if you're interested in that at all, she writes a couple episodes. She's a producer and it's just her brand of comedy, which I really connect with. Um, So it's just a fantastic show. Everyone in it is so good. And yeah, I love it. So uh, Baskets mm. on Hulu. All right. Um, all right. Well, that brings us to the end. We love you. We like episode. you. Listen. Ugh. Listen, subscribe, rate, and review us. That is the best way to show your support for the show. I haven't told Katie yet, but we're about to do a two-minute segment for Patreon. Ooh, we are? Uh-huh. Very exciting. Yeah, I feel, we're going to do that now. From now okay. on, at the end of every episode, we're going to do something just for our Patreon subscribers, and you guys can't have it unless you're there. Yeah. So if you went in on the fun, mm-hmm. join us on Patreon. They also all got ornaments and beautiful yes, Christmas cards. they did. So we love you. Um, keep in touch tune in next week and never forget that well-behaved women use their blinker when the lane is ending anyway <laughs> and they rarely make history bye goodbye okay Listen.
listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.